We continue in the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 8, verse 16. Listen for the word of the Lord. Jesus is speaking and says, No one, after lighting a lamp, hides it under a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a lampstand so that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not be disclosed, nor is anything secret that will not become known and come to light. Then pay attention to how you listen for to those who have, more will be given, and from those who do not have, even what they seem to have will be taken away. This is the word of the Lord. When I was in seminary, a name we often heard in Bible classes was C.H. Dodd. He was a great biblical scholar of the last century, wrote commentaries and a number of other books. When I was reading this week about the Gospel of Luke, I was reading a commentary by Dr. Fred Craddock. He used to be a professor here in Oklahoma at Phillips Theological Seminary, one of the great preachers in America. He quoted Dr. Dodd. Listen to what they say about a parable. At its simplest, the parable is a metaphor or simile drawn from nature or common life arresting the hearer by its vividness or strangeness and leaving the mind in sufficient doubt about its precise application to tease it into active thought. I read these three verses we've just read this morning and I was left in sufficient doubt about what Jesus was talking about. I wasn't sure I understood it. He, he talks about this lighting the lamp and, and putting it up on a lampstand. Then he goes into this whole thing about something hidden and it's going to be disclosed. And then back to that verse he had said before several times about listen, listen. And then this whole thing about something about who has will get more and they think they have. They, I couldn't understand it. I felt a little lost on Monday when I started looking at all this, wondered where we were going. My mind was in sufficient doubt as to be engaged in active thought. That's what the parables are about. But it reminded me of last Sunday afternoon when I was down at the Performing Arts Center to see a group called the Blue Man Group. How many of you all saw that? Just raise your hands. We've got a few out there, a few in the choir. Maybe if you didn't see it, for those of you who weren't there, you saw the commercial. It's the three guys whose faces are painted a bright blue almost a luminescent blue, but really it's not only their faces, their whole heads are covered in this luminescent blue as well as their hands. Sometimes this blue man group thing is called performance art. They never speak during the whole thing. Though there's lights and there's music, they're moving around, they're pantomiming things, but they never speak. You're there 90 minutes, two hours, not a word spoken for the whole show. But they're very clever, it's funny, they're entertaining. Oh, and I said they had talent. One of their opening numbers is, is one guy pulls out of his pocket a bag of something, and then he begins to throw them at another guy. You realize they're marshmallows, and the other guy is catching them. But just not one or two, like 20, 25 in a row. These guys are just firing them, and the other guy's just catching them like, you know, a frog or something. I told you, they're talented, really talented. That's just the beginning of the show. They do a whole skit with Twinkies, 10 minutes. I've never seen so much done with a Twinkie. 
But later in the show, they get a little more serious, and there's a whole piece about technology and how we interface with technology and what does it mean for humans and human relationships and for human living to have a cell phone and talk to people but not see them, to text them but not even talk to them at times. It's an experience not unlike this parable which leaves your mind in sufficient doubt about what was that all about. We enjoyed it. When our group got up to leave, we're walking out, and one of our groups said, what just happened here? <laughs> so I read this verse, next verse, next verse. I could not make sense of these verses until I stepped back and looked at the larger flow of Luke, at the larger context of what Luke is doing in constructing his gospel. If you have your Bible open, go back to the beginning of chapter 8. You see that there's a, a transition there. He's been telling some stories in 7. Then in 8, he says, Soon afterwards, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. The 12 were with him, as well as some women. And then he mentions by name several women. That's peculiar to Luke. He is the only one of our gospel writers that details for us who are these women that travel. Luke gives us these names. Then he goes on and says, but it's not only the 12 and the women that there are great crowds that are beginning together, lots of people starting to be followers. And then Luke says, so Jesus told them a parable about this sower. If you've been here, you know we've been talking about this sower, but basically it's a parable about how difficult it is to endure, to make it to the end. And then Luke tells us that Jesus and the disciples have a discussion about the purpose of the parables. And then there's a longer explanation about the parable of the sower. Then we come to the verses we read this morning about the lamp and such. And then this section ends with a discussion about who is the mother and who are the brothers of Jesus. But as you read through all that, if you read it as a whole section you begin to see a recurring theme. The common theme is the Word of God. You see it crop up as the parable of the sowers explained. It's about the Word of God, Jesus says. Then in verse 21, at the very end of this section, Jesus' answer about the question about, well, your mother and brothers are outside. He says, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the Word of God and do it or if you jump back up to verse 15 when he's bringing the whole explanation of the parable of the sower together he says but as for that in the good soil or the seeds in the good soil these are the ones who when they hear the word hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patient endurance so if the Word of God is the theme for this whole section, then I think the three verses we read make more sense if we remember Jesus is referencing the Word of God when he talks about these things. So if we read verse 16, it says, No one after lighting a lamp hides it under a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a lampstand so that those who enter may see the light, I think you could say, of the Word of God. Or in 17, For nothing is hidden about the Word of God that will not be disclosed, nor is anything secret about the Word of God that will not become known and come to light. Then pay attention to how you listen for the, to those who have 
the word of God, more will be given. And from those who do not have, even what they seem to have will be taken away. Jesus is trying to reveal to us the love of God, the word of God, the good news of God. It makes a whole lot more sense, that part about who has and who hasn't, if you're thinking about the word of God. There's other places in the gospel where Jesus talks about the word of God and the kingdom of God and says things are going to be reversed. The first will be last. The last will be first. If what you think your life is all about are material possessions, when you step into the kingdom, it might be like everything you had is taken away because what you valued is of little consequence. So Jesus wants us to hone in on the Word of God, on what God is saying through Jesus when He comes to us as Lord and Savior. The good news for us is that we are here and hearing the Word of God. We have read it. We're talking about it. We're thinking about it. We're engaged. So that's good news for us. We've taken the first step of hearing the Word of God. We might be the ones. You might be the ones who are ready. As he says at the end of the explanation of the sower to be the good soil. Those ones who hear the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart, and bear fruit. And that is key, see? It's not just hearing the word of God, not just knowing about Jesus and what God is doing through Christ, but sharing that, bearing fruit, serving others is a key part of this. But we are here, so we might be the ones who are ready to light the lamp and put it on a lampstand so that others can see the light of the Word of God. Do you know the story of the tower being a part of this building? Boston Avenue had a building before this at 5th and Boston. It was a square red brick building. It was sufficient for the time when they built it, but they were a growing congregation. There were two people, C.C. Cole and Audrey Cole, husband and wife, who were leading members of the congregation at that time. They liked to travel. They traveled extensively across the U.S. And every place they went, you know what they looked at? They looked at churches because they were thinking about what might the next building for Boston Avenue Church look like. Well, in the early 20s, C.C. Cole was named chair of a new building committee, and they began to work on what the building should look like. Audrey Cole was a big advocate for having a tower as part of the building. In 1922, Dr. Rice was appointed to be the pastor at the Boston Avenue Church at 5th in Boston. He heard about the plans. He liked the idea of the tower. It said when they were working on the plans, they didn't always agree. There were discussions, there were debates, there were arguments. But at one point, it was C.C. Cole, they say, that said the tower should be positioned right here on Boston, where you see it if you're coming from the north driving south. His office was downtown. He drove this way. He said this corner right there would be the perfect place for the tower. Ada Robinson was hired to be the designer of the building. 
She designed the way our sanctuary is set up, the beautiful windows that surround us. She said she designed the colors and the windows and the panels on top of the tower to reflect as much light as possible because she wanted the light of God to be the main symbol in this building so that any who entered here might feel the light of God reflecting the divine light pouring down upon us and God's love pouring out upon us. I think she did a masterful job. And then on the 10th anniversary, Dr. Forney Hutchinson had been appointed. This church was here. He gave an address, and he said, The tower preaches the gospel in its location, its majesty, its beauty, and its constancy. Dr. Rice said, I want a building of such magnitude that even if you're a person standing outside in the rain, the very building itself will speak to you. It is a beacon to this community. At our centennial, Walt Helmrich III made a significant gift so that the tower could be lighted day and night. So even the darkest night of the year, the tower would be a light. I was talking with Dr. Biggs earlier this week, asking him some questions about that history. And he said, do you know the story Dr. Galloway told? I said, I do not. He said he was working late one night, which was not his practice. He heard a knock at his door. He went and answered it. It was a young woman he did not know. She said, I was staying at the Mayo Hotel. My life is a mess. I got a room as high as I could get. I was going to kill myself by jumping. I went to my window, opened it, preparing to jump to my death, and I saw the tower. And something inside me said, go to that place. Go to that place. And so she did not jump, came down the tower, came to Boston Avenue. Dr. Galloway's office at that point was right on this level in the corner and found him, and he counseled her, and her life was spared. The tower is a beacon of light. We stand in a long line of those who light the lamp, but we do not put it under a jar. We do not put it under a bed. We put it on a lampstand so that all might see the light of God pouring out upon them. Let's think how else we might be the light of the Word of God. Some research says it takes seven contacts for a person new to a congregation to feel like that congregation can be the place they belong, that they need seven faces and names that they can call that know them when they come on a Sunday. You could be a light to someone if you're ready with a handshake when you see somebody you do not know walk into this building. You could be one of those people that says hello or you see someone wandering in the hall and you ask them if we can help them find, you know, they might be looking for the nursery or the library or the choir room. You could be one of those seven that would be a light to them, be one that would help them experience the light of the Word of God coming alive in their lives. I read once that some advertisers concluded that it takes 28 times for someone to hear an advertisement or 
see a piece of information, read something, and actually retain it. 28 times. That's a lot. So how many times do you think someone needs to hear the message of the gospel before they retain it? Before they grasp it or before it grasps them? Maybe 28 times. So how many times should you share your faith with someone? How often should you mention that on Sunday morning you go to church? How often should you look for opportunity when you're talking with friends or neighbors or business associates to mention that faith is a central part of your life? It shapes who you are. It shapes your values. It helps you make decisions. It gives you hope and joy. How often should we mention that? Well, you may not be all 28 of the times, but you could be a link in the chain. You could make a difference for someone by mentioning that that's important to you. That's what you choose to do on Sunday morning. That's where you go on Wednesday night. How many times should we share that? Jesus says, no one, after lighting a lamp, hides it under a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a lampstand so that those who enter may see the light. Now, I've come up with a new idea for you here, and this may be out of your comfort zone. Some of you, after I share, are going to think, he's gone too far. But let me tell you what happened, and you be, you be the judge. You let me know what you think. There's this idea that came up in our staff meeting several weeks ago. The idea that came up in staff a few weeks ago is that we should have yard signs. Let's say Boston Avenue, something about Boston Avenue. There were some of our staff who had seen them for other churches, for schools, and they were saying, you know, Boston Avenue is important enough we do enough good things that we should tell people and get our people to help us tell people that we are here and that we're welcoming them. Well, we discussed it a little bit. I wasn't sure. I didn't really warm to the idea right off, so we kind of moved along to other things in the staff and made no decision. Then a few weeks ago, we were talking about Great Day at B.A., and what are we going to do in September to encourage people to sign up for a Bible study, to get back into Sunday school, to be here for worship every Sunday? How can we do that? And guess what idea came up again? How about those yard signs? Well, the staff kind of began to warm to the idea. So finally I said, all right, let's order some yard signs. So guess what? We ordered hundreds of yard signs for you. <laughs> you can take one home this morning. You may have seen them when you came in. They're beautiful. They say Boston Avenue Church welcomes all. We thought it was short enough you could read it when you drove by and yet conveyed a word of grace and welcome that we believe is inherent to the gospel. Now, I just got to tell you, it's out of my comfort zone. I don't do bumper stickers, window stickers, yards. It's not my thing. But I thought, you know, my neighbor across the street has one for her church about VBS. Boston Avenue is important enough maybe to have a yard sign. I thought if I put it in the yard, I might get some negative comments. I might get some criticism. 
but I also thought it might start a conversation. It might open a door. You know, I'm new in my neighborhood, so people don't necessarily know who I am or where I go to church. My kids are old enough. I'm not going to meet them at the neighborhood school, but the sign might just cause them to think a moment, maybe to ask me about it when they see me in the neighborhood, and maybe I could share my church home with them. Maybe there would be something here that would really help them, something they really need in their lives that they're looking for. And maybe the yard sign helps with that. Or maybe I put one up and down the block someone else I don't even know comes here, puts one up, and I get to know my neighbor a little bit better that goes to the 830 service or sits in the balcony when I'm down here. Any number of things might happen. But finally I decided, asking myself, would it be worth it if posting the sign helped reach someone with the Word of God? I decided it would be worth it because Jesus says no one after lighting a lamp hides it under a jar or puts it under a bed but puts it on a lampstand so that those who enter or pass by may see the light. So it's something to think about. The 830 crowd was so excited about it they may all be gone and you'll be off the hook. Several came by and said, I'm going to take it and put it in my garage and see if I can get used to it before I put it in my yard. I said, baby steps are good. Let's get started. Somebody else said, I might just put it in my car and see it there when I drive around and warm up to it and later put it in the yard. Whatever works for you. But while you're thinking about it, let me close with this. There's a poem called The Fellowship of the Unashamed. It is said that it was found in the pocket 